Oren Groff, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. We are so excited about Matrix. It is your new book. It is also the September Barnes & Noble Book Club pick, and it's out today. Thank you for having me on the show. It's so lovely to be here with you. Thank you. I'm so happy to see you. A lot of readers know you from Fates and Furies in 2015. It was a massive bestseller. You had Florida, a collection of short stories in 2019. And now you've got us in 12th century England with nuns. And Lauren, you made me care about 12th century nuns. So how did we get here? (laughs) How did we get here? How are we with nuns in the 12th century? (laughs) Obviously, I've had enough of Florida and I just want to become a nun. Like, get me out of here. Put me in a habit. I don't know. To be honest, uh, I was so tired of living in Trump's America. And I was laughing with my friends the whole time saying, why don't we just form a separatist feminist utopia, right? Let's go buy an island and we just walk around, everything hanging out. And there are no small boys that I have to clean up after and no large men and no screaming men on Twitter. And that joke sort of weirdly came full circle and sort of dovetailed into long held passions of mine and new passions about nuns, believe it or not, because I think that nuns are amazing. Dead to devote your life to God is this extraordinary vocation. Marie, she's the center of your story, ultimately the abbess. And she's based on an actual historical figure that we don't really know a lot about. We know she was a poet. We know she was probably French, but living in England. And we know she was probably an abbess. So how did you find Marie de France? and decide to make her the hero of this story. About 20 something years ago, and I don't actually know how many 20 years ago, in university, I thought that I was going to study only medieval French. That was the thing that I was really passionate about in freshman and sophomore year. And so I took a couple of tutorials and I did translations of medieval French texts. I was super into it. And then like all passions, early ones, it sort of fell away a little bit, but I still retained this love of this one poet named Marie de France. She wrote these almost short stories in poetry form called Les. And Les are extraordinary, right? They're sort of mystical, kind of magical. They've got talking unicorns in them. They're really, really weird texts. And some of them sort of go with the Arthurian mythology, which was very bold and strong at the time. So these things were just really exciting for me. And I kept them in the back of my head. Over the years, I was working on some translations of the lay, uh, just for myself, for fun, like to keep in the world of Ancien Français. I had always thought I would want to do something about Marie de France, even though, as you said, we truly do not know anything about her. I mean, we only have suppositions, right? Historians say she could have been an illegitimate child of royalty. They say that she could have been an abbess in England from France. They say she could have been one of the daughters of Eleanor of Aquitaine. They have no idea because women at the time were not seen as whole and entire unto themselves. They were seen basically relationally through their fathers, husbands, and sons. So nobody thought to write down who this woman actually was. This is the incredible first published poet in France. It was this thing that I'd carried around for a long time. And then I had this wonderful experience at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, where I saw a friend of mine give a talk on medieval nuns. And she's so passionate. As I was sitting in the audience, her passion sort of crossed 
the distance and sort of went straight into me. And I saw this long-held dream of Marie de France and these nuns sort of colliding. And I actually saw the next book that I was going to write, even though I was writing a different book at the time. So that's where this book came from. And I also saw it as a way of sort of addressing some of the things that bedeviled me in the contemporary world. Some of the things that I've been thinking of and working through and trying to wrap my brain around. So believe it or not, a thousand years ago was perhaps a little bit speaking toward the present moment, at least in my vision of it. It definitely is. And this is a really tight 275 pages. Oh, yeah. It's really tight. I mean, (laughs) this is, you do not waste a word. And one of the things (laughs) I really appreciate about the way you've structured the book is that we get markers of time that are seasonal, animals being born, harvest being collected, snow. But then also, when Marie shows up initially at the Abbey, it's failing. Mm-hmm. It does not have support. They're tucked away in a corner. And this is the real punishment. She's being exiled mm-hmm. from court. She's mm-hmm. 17. She has no resources, no family, no people to speak of. And exile from court for someone like her is pretty serious. And she's yeah. sent to the Abbey to be the prioress, to run the books, to run the business piece of the Abbey, to be honest. And here she is, a teenager, without anything. And we see the evolution of her. And we're going to stay away from a lot of the big beats in this tiny, slim 275 page <laughs> That's the fun of it. And that's why we picked it for the book club. But can we talk about the structure? Can we talk about the language? Can we talk about how you started this book? Did it start with Marie or did you start with an image and work from there? At one point, you're talking about how the nunnery has gone from 15 women to suddenly we're at 50 a few pages down. And then by the end of it, it's 180 nuns. I mean, yeah. Marie does some amazing stuff here. She was an incredible businesswoman, as mm-hmm. the abbesses of the day were. They were incredible business people. So I begin the book by actually going back to the Lay of Marie de France. And what I did was I just plucked out a lot of the vivid imagery that I had loved from these poems and her fables too. She wrote these fables that are very weird. And I had this list of probably 100 to 150 just really bright images to, to work with. And I built the biography around those images. I actually created a whole scope of life around that. And then I didn't keep a single word from that, but I kept the overall scope of the life and the, the, the way that she changed through the images from, from that first sort of reverse engineering through the work of the poet at hand. So as the book sort of slowly developed, as they all do, I came across another motif that became the foundational structural motif, which was the labyrinth. At the time, unicursal labyrinths, like the one in the Cathédrale de Chartres, is this incredible thing. If you've ever been to Chartres, it's this inlaid, in-the-floor tiles, huge one-way labyrinth. And it was supposed to, at the time, signify the route to Jerusalem, because this is the time of each crusade. There are multiple crusades that happen at this time. And so this was this motif that just come, kept coming back and coming back. I think it's called the Baden-Meinhof <laughs> thing, where, where something that you see once just keeps returning in synchronicity. Baden-Meinhof, yeah. And so I saw this and I saw the labyrinth and I, I knew that also Eleanor of Equitan, who's really big in this book, there was a rumor that her husband's mistress had been put in a labyrinth at the center of a labyrinth in order to keep her away from Eleanor's vindictiveness and her poison. And so I took this idea and I sort of made the structure of the book itself in sort of a wheel around this idea of the labyrinth. And so it became the foundational, actual physical architectural structure. And the language, though, 
yeah. the language. This is a really modern, there are no these and thous. You are not attempting to mimic verbal patterns from the 12th no. century. And certainly nothing is written in Old English or Latin or Old French, whatever the equivalent of Old English French is. Let's talk yeah. about those choices for a second. Let's talk about how you structure a story like this and keep it contemporary and keep us connected to these women because there is a cast of women here. They're amazing. <laughs> Some of them are really prickly, and but they're prickly for a reason. Some of yeah. these women have chosen to be part of the Abbey and others were sent there simply because the other members of their families thought they were a pain yeah. for whatever reason. Yes. And this happens quite a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, if you had an unmarriageable daughter, you just send her to a nunnery. Right? So the language, actually, you're right. I mean, there are like a few snippets of Latin, maybe a few mm -hmm. of Old English and Old French, but not many. And I really did not want to do sort of the very stilted, you know, these and those, because that drives you crazy. So I came on a way of speaking in their voices without speaking in their voices with sort of indirect narration, indirect quotation. So it, it's almost as though what they're saying is being described in contemporary modern English so that it can hold the capaciousness of the different languages that they spoke at the time. Because of course, Latin was the business language, right? It was sort of the lingua franca of the day. English was what the shepherds spoke out in the field and nobody understood what they were speaking. French was the vernacular of the nobility, right? Because of the Norman conquest. So there are all these mixtures of languages. I didn't want to get everything confused. And so this indirect language took, took over the book. And a lot of what you're talking about, too, I mean, we see beauty as power, and we see what the value of women is, as you said, to their relationships with their fathers and husbands and brothers. But as the Abbey grows, as Marie grows the Abbey and their resources, the community is threatened by the nuns and their success. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you've gone back to the 12th century to write a novel that you could have set in the present day. Yeah, thank you. That was my intention. I think sometimes when we, we writers seek to go back to historical times, we know at the outset that there's this strangeness to a text written in contemporary language in a contemporary time that's talking about the past, right? There, it's, it's almost like a, a syncopated beat or something that's happening in the reader's mind. So the whole time I was writing the first few drafts, I was sort of struggling with this simultaneity, right? It was it was writing in two times at the, at the same time. And what I finally figured out was that I wanted both time periods to sort of speak toward each other, sort of project their voices from the now, that it was very obvious that I was writing from into the past and the past to project its now into the future. So that it was almost this sense in my own head of a tuning fork being struck, right? So there are two two times on the tuning fork, and I wanted that resonance between. That's what I was trying to go for, for sure. It worked. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> Can we talk about your process? And you've talked about research. You've talked about your friends sort of turning you on to the idea of writing about nuns as a community. How do you go from the research to the story itself? How do you make that transition? This is just nuts and bolts, but I could spend five to 10 years researching. I have so much joy in research. I love libraries. I love librarians, right? I just really like, I love any place where books are held because then you come in contact with brains of people dead and alive. It's just like astonishing to meet all these new friends. 
So I could spend forever doing that. I just know that that's one of my weaknesses. And so I really just give myself a preliminary span of time. I give myself two months to read as much as possible, to go as deep as I possibly could, knowing that I would have enormous holes in my understanding and knowledge at the end. And then I was allowed to write a very fast and sloppy first draft, understanding that as I was doing that, I was trying to understand where I needed to go. So you don't know what you don't know until you come up right up against your ignorance. <laughs> it was this process of research, then write, then scrap all that, then research. And that's what I do basically with all my books. I write many, many, at first, incredibly sloppy drafts, and then they become more refined and more attentive to the language as the, the process goes on. Are you reading other people while you're working? Or are you one of those writers who can't do that and you've just got to sit? Oh, God, no. I love reading other people. I mean, Meanwhile, you and I read a lot. Yeah. I, I have a goal of reading 300 books a year. And mm -hmm. you can't do that if you're not reading constantly. And in fact, I spend far more time every single day reading than I do writing. I spend one, every day has to be at least one, but maybe four hours, one to four hours. And then I'm just kind of depleted with my own work. And then for the rest of the day, this is the greatest job. I get to read. I get to lie down on my dog's bed with her and read all day. It's phenomenal. So yeah, no, I, I love reading and love finding other people's takes on the time. I got really, really excited about some of the books of historians that were very strange to my head, <laughs> you know, at the, because, you know, I'm not a historian. And to see the world through a historian's eyes is to see it radically differently than, than through a fiction writer's eyes. Truth is presented as truth and not a supposition. So exciting to, to do the research for sure. What were some of the things you were reading while you were working on Matrix? Okay, so <laughs> now I have, it's, thank you for asking me this, because I actually have to now like think through a list on the spot. I think I started, when I knew that I wanted to write a nun book, I read this one extraordinary nun book called Marriott and Ecstasy by uh, Ron Hansen. Ron Hansen, right? Hansen that oh. book, water, okay, Water oh That Smells God. Like Grapefruit. I still remember, I, I read that book a million years ago and Water That Smells Like Grapefruit. It's astonishing. It's an mm -hmm. astonishing book. I went back mm -hmm. to it probably three or four times. He's doing something very different than what I'm mm -hmm. doing. It's a, more of a contemporary narrative and it's more about faith, really, and sort of belief, which is not necessarily what my book wanted to be about. But thinking about these women together in a convent was really, really helpful and really wonderful. I only read halfway through uh, writing the book, multiple drafts in, um, The Corner That Held Them by Sylvia Warner Townsend. She was the one who did Lolly Willows. I don't know if you read that. I love Lolly Willows. Such a great book. The Corner That Held Them is bizarre. It's so good. It's a nun book from, I think, the 13th century or 12th, maybe. Sylvia Townsend Warner is a 20th, I think, 20th century writer. Not at all the medieval ages as anyone would ever recognize it. And it's episodic and it's very, very weird. It's a very weird book. I love that very much. I read many, many, many fictionalized and regular biographies about Eleanor Beckwith because she was really important to my book. And then Henry II or Henry the Young King, right? All of the royalty of the time. I mean, there are books about them, right? And, and then I read a huge number of books just trying to understand what the day-to-day -day life was, not only in an abbey, but for people in the world at large, right? Because it was so profoundly more physical in so many ways. And the things that I think often we take for granted in the contemporary world, people just had to work for. I mean, you couldn't turn a tap and get water unless you, you know, you were in the Middle East where they actually had running water and pipes. It was this extraordinary process of just 
following rabbit hole after rabbit hole down into places where I knew that I wasn't ever going to use any of this stuff and then just coming back out and reading more fiction. You know? Okay, so who are some of your major influences, the writers you go back to again and again? I can think of a couple, but I don't want to bias where the conversation is going to go. I have so many people. Okay, so this is always the most difficult conversation for me because I feel guilty at the end that I you know, haven't mentioned my absolute favorites. You know, the one that I read every year, on purpose is uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch. I love that book so deeply. I started as a poet and Emily Dickinson still the queen of my heart. I still just adore that woman her concision, her weirdness. There is no writer as weird as Emily Dickinson. I just love her. Anne Carson, if we're talking about living writers, because she is so hybrid. She does poetry, but she also does essays. And she's just like a great weirdo in a wonderful way. When I say weirdo, it's the greatest possible compliment. I don't know. There's so many books that I, I return to over and over again. For the the texture of the language, for instance, sometimes I'll go to James Salter, or I'll go to Dennis Johnson, or I'll go to Grace Paley, or to Alice Munro, right? So it's, it's dependent on the day and how sad I am or how happy I am, right? <laughs> and my list would change. Is there something you love now that you were a little cold to the first time you read it? Oh my goodness, there are so many books like that for me. Yeah, it actually took me about five running jumps to get into Moby Dick, which I think is probably a very normal thing to say about that book. It's very strange. Oh, you know what? Don Quixote. I just read it in full last summer, which is shameful to say because I am now 43. But I think for the longest time, I kept getting snagged on the terrible poetry in the beginning, right? There's just reams of horrendous poetry at the beginning of Don Quixote. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get through it. It was just so bad. And then I read the book and I was like, there's no book that's as good as Don Quixote. It is the parents of every book that has come after in many ways. It is just such an astonishing narrative. It, it does metafiction, autofiction, everything hundreds of years before we had a name for these things. Yeah, it's extraordinary. What's next? And you've done novels, you've done story collections. This book is electric. I don't think I've read anything like this in a really long time. Oh, and, thank you. And I do see the echoes of writers like Dennis Johnson and James Salter in it. And I think it's the precision of the language. I think that's really what it comes down to. You are so specific. And it's the details. I, I've never done any animal husbandry and I have never <laughs> farmed and I've never had to run an abbey. But the precision of the details is what gives you the universal emotion and the experience. And I think that's really important. And mm. you get lost in the language, which I really appreciate. I mean, I can read Johnson and Salter over and over and over again. Mm. And there's always something that's revealed because it's about the people ultimately. And you yeah. have a cast of women in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. I love them all. I even love Soda, that she's the sub prioress who has a lot of attributes of someone I love dearly, but have a very hard time with. <laughs> you know, we don't talk about this very much, but one of the good pleasures of being a writer is that you get to embed your humans into the works of art. And so... You never want to cross a writer, for sure. You will find yourself in their work. It's very funny. I think often people don't see themselves in the people that I model them after, which I'm, I'm very glad about. 
it takes a long time to sort of understand how to condense character into detail through the drafting process. It's I probably write, I don't know, 3,000 pages to get a 275-page book. It just takes a very long time of writing just a lot too much and then pulling it down in order to get to the, the place where each d- detail conveys some sort of emotional reality or truth. That's what one is intending to do. That's what sometimes we are able to to achieve. Okay, so does that mean we get a story collection next or do we get another oh, novel? That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just really like talking to you. No, not the story collection. I think I'm almost positive that the book that I was working on when Matrix came full thunderclap into my head is going to be the next book. And there are very, very related themes of women, God, and the relationship of the religions that we are born into and how that affects our understanding of the natural world. All of these three books that I've been working on are all sort of obsessed with these spinning ideas. And so the next one is basically a female Robinson Crusoe, which is, I have to tell you, despite the horrific colonialism and the slavery and the white supremacy, it's still, beyond that, an amazing narrative and one of my favorite books to go back to and to think about, right? Because I have never read a book that so perfectly uh, congeals Calvinism. <laughs> it's like hard work and the mindset of the people that created it. I mean, Defoe was like, here's England <laughs> in my time and it's in a man on an island with goats. Yeah. Okay. I have to ask because we're bumping up against a hard stop. So I'm I'm just going to ask because no, don't apologize because (laughs) life is life. And I'm glad we got to squeeze this in. But more importantly, before I forget, because this is a question that you have been asked in every single interview since time began and since I've known you. And I have to ask, because apparently this is what interviewers do when they talk to you. So what's it like, Lauren, balancing motherhood and your big writing (laughs) career? You have two national book awards. How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you actually manage your household and get your kids to school and get them fed and all the things that moms do? Your husband probably does some of this too. I'm sorry. It's just these questions that, you know, I have no idea how things run in your house, but it's one of those questions that every single interview since I time love that began. I this in, like, like a meta question. I love that it's not a serious question. That's hilarious. This is very I, funny. I mean, it can't be a serious question. I mean, it's <laughs> men don't get asked that question. I'm like, I you know. know, some of them have children too. Like, uh, do they? I've no. heard that male writers have children and spouses. <laughs> <laughs> they do not. They, they might even load the dishwasher. I'm pretty sure they oh, load well, the I've met them. They definitely don't. Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Can we just talk about the work? (laughs) Thank you so much. This is my favorite thing. I love, this is why I love talking to you because you really just talked about the work. Thank you so much. It's okay to talk about these things. I just don't want to. I think that if it helps another person, I'm happy to be pulled aside at a party. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to to write an email to someone struggling. I just, I so appreciate when people like you, brilliant readers are able to think about the work out loud with me. Thank you. And who hasn't wanted to ride a horse through the front doors of a house? I dream about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Really, honestly, just like knocking down, rearing back with a stallion and just kicking down a front door. I really want to do that. 
I, I don't think we're yeah. alone in that. You know what? We're hitting the magic hour. So oh, I am going to wrap things up at that point. Lauren Groff, thank, thank you so you. much. Matrix is out today. It is the new Barnes and Noble book club pick. And I cannot wait for readers to meet Marie and her nuns. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I so appreciate it. Okay, ready? I'm ready. Hey, guys. My name is James. And I am Margie. And we're here with your TBR Top Off, a new segment on Port Over, the Barnes and Noble podcast, where we're going to recommend three books to you that you're going to love based off of our interview today with Lauren Groff. We are at the Northville, Michigan store, cozy little bookstore, hanging out, having some coffee. I have a coffee frappuccino from our cafe, which I'm very much enjoying. I'm all about the mocha today. (laughs) we've been talking about books so we have three great books that you're really going to enjoy and you're going to want to add to your tbr list and if you don't know what tbr is margie will you will you explain oh my tbr is to be read and we all have that giant stack sitting somewhere in our homes absolutely and that stack is nowhere near big enough if we're all honest you need to add more books to that (laughs) we all do so we're going to give you three to add today based on The Matrix by Lauren Groff, which we're all so very excited about. So we picked three books based on a few criteria that we kind of picked up from the interview she just did with Miwa. And what are those criteria, Margie? So to go along with Matrix, we decided to pick a few books that are women-centric. They are based on real events or real people, and they have faith as one of their central themes. All right. And the first book is The Mercies, right? Tell us about it. That's correct. The Mercies by Kieran Millward Hargrave. It takes place in the early 1600s in the far north of Norway, and it's actually bookended by two actual historical events. So in 1617, there is a small village that is devastated when the male population is almost completely wiped out by a freak storm. Secondly, in 1620, the trials begin for the largest witch hunt in Scandinavian history, which sweeps up a number of people from this village. So the novel takes place in those three intervening years. It is narrated by Marin, a young woman who witnesses the cataclysmic wave and then relates how the women have to set their grief aside to take control of their situation if they want to survive Things get complicated when a commissioner arrives intent on seeing witchcraft in their community. Further complicating things is the commissioner's wife, Ursa, with whom Marin develops a bond that gets dangerously deep as they spend more time together. This is a great book about the tensions of change between new religions and old traditions, between dependence and self-reliance, and between obedience and self-determination. All right. The title of that book, again, is The Mercies by Kieran Millwood Hargrave. And our second book, number two, Pope Joan by Donna Wolfolk Cross. So the historical basis for this novel is still hotly debated, but it's more historical legend and historical fact that Pope John Paul VIII was actually a woman in disguise. So between 855 and 858, Pope John VIII held office. Cross brings this medieval legend and the Dark Ages in general to an enthralling life complete with Viking attacks, plagues, intrigue, both papal and secular. So this novel has a little bit of everything. It's love, sex, violence, duplicity, buried secrets, you name it. But at its core, it's the story of a woman who wanted to learn and was willing to defy the odds to fulfill her destiny. And that's Pope Joan by Donna Wolfolk Cross. 
And our third book. And Margie. our third book is Women Talking by Miriam Taves. It is a bit different. This isn't historical. It took place in the early 2000s, but it is an amazing novel based on real life events. The true elements of this story are in a remote German speaking Mennonite colony in Bolivia. A small group of men are found to have been drugging many of the girls and women, sexually assaulting them, and telling those that have any hazy memories of The third novel is Women Talking by Miriam Taves. It's a bit different. It is not really historical, but it is an amazing novel based on real life events. The true elements of this story uh, happen in the early 2000s. In a remote German-speaking Mennonite colony in Bolivia, a small group of men are found to have been drugging many of the girls and women, then sexually assaulting them, and telling those that have any hazy memories of the assault that their minds are actually being taken by the devil. The novel itself takes place after these terrible events, when a delegation of women is tasked with making a heartbreaking decision to either forgive these monsters honestly and completely in keeping with their Mennonite faith, or they have to leave the community. The novel is narrated by August Epp, who is the town outcast, and the women ask him to record their deliberations for posterity because as women, they were never taught to read or write, even in the early 2000s. Even though there is a man narrating, the hearts and minds and voices of these women are what truly shine through. And it is a beautifully rendered meditation on the nature of faith and forgiveness and ultimately on hope. Okay, well, I'm adding that to my list right now. (laughs) It is boss. (laughs) All right. Women Talking by Miriam Taves. So those are your three books to add to your TBR list this week, your TBR top off. Again, if you want book recommendations, that's what we're here for. Go to your local Barnes & Noble, and we will have real live human being booksellers there to talk to you about books. It's what we like to do. And then join us again on the Port Over podcast for another TBR Top Off segment. I'm James. You can follow me on Instagram at jamesreadingbooks. And I am Margie, and I am also on Instagram at margiebookbrain. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.